Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R for an Hour of Science. In the studio with me today is Dr. Ailey. Good morning, madam. Good morning. Happy New Year. I know it's all, well, I was going to say the end of January, but I haven't seen you, so Happy New Year. So I just looked at my watch, which I realized <laughs> for the day, would, that would seemingly be tell a you. stupid thing, but these days, these watches have so much information. There you go. I just learned what the temperature is, the date, the day, which I was unsure about until yesterday. And what you had for breakfast. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get that. Good morning, Dr. Laura. See, now it's telling, now it's telling, me, uh, it's telling me bad things. Dr. Laura, hello. Happy first show back for, well, for me and Ailey, really. Yeah. We're just happy yeah, each other. I know. It's but good to fun. see you, Shane. Yeah, good to see you too. I've lost control of the technology. It's, uh, it's all happening. We have a big show for you today, folks. A uh, couple of guests coming into the studio. We're going to be talking about an illness that many of you won't have heard of, but it actually is... Um, potentially pretty problematic and then our second guest is going to be talking about climate change stuff so yeah i thought i'd start the year on a high note happy note well you know maybe mitigation strategies maybe stuff we can well, do that's good exactly you've got to be positive right got to be positive and uh then dr ailey's got some story she wants to tell us about oh, later which uh, just yeah i don't know weather stuff you got between now and then to make something yeah. up <laughs> <laughs> but we'll start off with some uh news and can, can i just start before you guys jump in mm-hmm. just by saying Look out, people. Somewhere in Western Australia, there is a six millimetre wide puck mm-hmm. that's filled with cesium-137. Yep. Saw that. Fallen off, literally fallen off the back of the truck. How does that happen? Did not see that. Like, was it just kind of sitting there? I the, mean, you know, I, I don't understand. I don't know. The reporting is it's a one in a hundred year event. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I read. And I think, okay, these things, these things actually puts out a reasonable amount of radiation. And, you know, the this is an interesting element of science communication as to how you tell people how much, right? Mm. So the argument was it's like getting 10 x-rays an hour. That's how, that's how much it puts out. And you think, okay, 10 x-rays an hour. Yeah, maybe that's so bad. And then the comparison is to the natural background radiation you would get in a year just by existing on the planet. That kind of settles people down, right? But if you do the numbers, right, actually – what what that means is it's about over about nine thousand times the natural background radiation because if you're getting all of that in just one hour, twenty four hours in a day, three hundred sixty five days in a year, is that right? In the quarter, I forgot the quarter. Added in, it's almost nine thousand times the dose. Yep. So if you see in your fourteen hundred kilometre travels across Western Australia a six millimetre wide puck. Don't pick it up, people. Well, I saw somebody 3D printed the size of it, and it's like the size of a tiny little bolt. It almost looks yeah. like the size of a, a like a large vitamin tablet right, right. that you would yeah. swallow. And there's nothing else that Needle size. Needle in a haystack. Yeah. And if you're driving along, it's just on the side of the road, oh. right? I mean, the only thing I think they can really do here is um, have a checkpoint where if people are concerned that it got stuck in their wheel, they can run a Geiger counter yeah. over their car and yeah. say, okay, now you're clear, you're fine. Because yeah. that's, I think, their concern is that it's in someone's garage, uh, which, you know, you never know, mm. right? I think you're more likely to have a snake stuck in your car from travelling, you know... <laughs> I the, thought you were going to say a radioactive snake cruising through the desert. Well, look, I, I'm hoping for the two-headed wombats. Well, this it's is, going to happen. This is very Spider-Man, really, just well, with Australian animals. Yeah, I did nuclear physics until third year uni, and I, I learned some stuff there, but most of what I learned was from The Simpsons. <laughs> and uh, this is not going to play out well. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, I think uh, but the whole new trade area for Australia, you know, to the rest of the world, if you, if you need to lose some radioactive material... We can do it for you. <laughs> well, the no desert's questions the place asked. to do it, I suppose. Yeah, no questions asked. <laughs> yeah, that's anyway, uh, we will be watching this carefully to see if this little puck turns up. My money is on it never turning up. Yep, I completely agree. But uh, you never know. You never know. Dr. Laura, what do you got for us? Well, there was some news that caught my attention in you know, popular science news journals. And you know when you read, like, a headline in popular news and it sounds really sensational mm. and then you go to the article and it's such a letdown? <laughs> it's such a and you're article. like, that is not what it says. But I then went to the article and the article title was just as sensational. I'm oh. going to give you the title. A carnivorous mushroom paralyzes and kills nematodes via a volatile ketone. 
Now that I- that in scientific advances that's last week, cool. that would make you that's a page turner. Yeah. So I, mean, I did. That's that's Triffid stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Did everybody know that fungi were carnivorous apart from me? Because I didn't know anything I did about this. I, I thought they just ate stuff from the soil. Are mushrooms even vegan? I mean, there are there are big questions now. So fungi actually digest <laughs> worm flesh. They Very eat good. meat. They're meat eaters. Meat eaters. Right? So this, apparently this has been known for ages, and they've got um, physical and chemical warfare strategies which they use to digest worms. So um, apparently back from the 1980s, scientists have known that oyster mushrooms, which are everywhere, which we all are eat. Are delicious. Which are yeah, delicious. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, people find them delicious. I hate mushrooms, so I feel kind of – I feel righteous <laughs> in this story that they're murderous. <laughs> so um, they, they poison and paralyze nematodes, which are the most abundant – um, you know, animal in the soil. Right. And they do this by a variety of strategies, fungi. It's physical warfare, or which is where they'll basically use their root system, which is called hyphae, which is all filamentous. So, you know, what we pick off is non-toxic. That's the mushroom, that's the fruiting body. And then you go down and then there's lots of filaments and that's how they get their nutrients and that's how they feed. And it's all these little filaments which they can wrap around the worm's neck and strangle them or mm. they can create necks and kill them that way and then absorb the protein contents. So they're physically attacking yes. the worms. Yeah, they're terrible. Oh, my gosh. So lots of different oyster mushrooms secrete nerve gas, which paralyze these creatures. It's wild. This This, is is Day of the Triffid stuff. I know. Like, legit. This is crazy. And apparently it's been hypothesized. This has been, you know, this strategy evolved hundreds of million years ago because oyster mushrooms are largely attached to um, rotting wood and there's not a lot of nitrogen in there. So they need to get their nitrogen to, you know, propel sort of, making proteins in another way so in this study they wanted to investigate exactly how they these were um these oyster mushrooms were releasing nerve gas and basically on their filaments there's lots of lollipop like structures and the researchers use this term i'm not making this up they called it a nerve gas in a lollipop so they've got lollipop structures (laughs) they're called oh where is it they're called um sort of toxic bodies, toxocysts, and they wanted to characterise exactly what was being released from them. And by gas chromatography and mass spe- spectrometry, it sounds very scientific, doesn't it? And I just kind of fumbled how you even say that, mass, <laughs> mass, spec, mass spectrometry. Mass they they characterised that the volatile ketone being released was 3-octanone mm-hmm. and that it's in such high concentration in these external bodies, it's not toxic to the mushrooms themselves because it's external. But if a worm is to pass by, mm-hmm. this um, toxin will be released, it will attack their nervous system, Has a hu- it results in a huge influx of calcium into the worm. The worm then gets paralysed, goes into a state of rigor morphosis, and then the filament sort of structures of the mushroom penetrate the worm <laughs> and then digest all the protein slurry out of it. Well, yum. That's it. So, isn't that marvelous? I, I gotta say, if I was the researcher giving a talk about this, I would hand out lollipops beforehand. <laughs> Here's your free lollipops, folks. It'll be, it will be relevant to you in time. Vegan. And yeah, Think and, about then, that. and then they'd be <laughs> eating their lollipops while you're giving a talk. All of a sudden, you drop the mushroom bomb on them. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that incredible? That's... Wow. I'm quite scared now. <laughs> yeah. Because, you, you know, you're never going to have one of those mushroom boxes in your garage now, are you? Like, no. Because you, you think, what happens when you're well, asleep? Well, I know. <laughs> Although, sleep too uh, long. look, to be honest, it does sound like they do good things, you know, then in the garden if they're breaking mm. down. Incredible yeah. stuff. So that's yeah. actually pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, don't put your worms near your mushrooms. I think that's the... <laughs> That's the if story, right? you keep right? your worms, I think. Actually, they know that if you plant oyster mushroom versus a different type of mushroom, you'll be devoid of nematodes in the soil if wow. you plant oyster oh, mushrooms. So it's not... only oyster mushrooms? Or it's that, that I think statement. there are many different species yes, of fungus that can right. do it, but they compared two different types yeah. of fungi which did and didn't and okay. devoid of nematodes yeah, in, right. the, uh, mush- in the oyster mushroom so experiment. So did they compare the ones that – what is it? Saphiridic and – I can't remember the word. The ones that attached to – like outsides of trees and the ones that attach to the roots from the ground. I, there are many different species that can eat the nematodes, but yeah, it's the okay. ones on the wood that particularly have evolved yeah, to do it right. because they want well, the nitrogen. So shiitake might do it too. Yeah. I, love, I love the way as you were searching for that weird mushroom classification word, you looked at me. Yeah. <laughs> like you might the know. The physics guy, like, like I might have some. Right? Well, <laughs> 
That's the exactly. delusion that I try and put out there, but no. <laughs> you are the font of all knowledge. <laughs> I think of the... All mushroom no, knowledge, apparently. Mushroom knowledge. Well, anyway, I'm just going to leave that <laughs> he one. He knows which ones to pick. Leave that one right alone. Thank you, Laura. Always learn something disturbing, disturbing. when uh, you're in the studio every single time. Ailey. Well, we're going to go from carnivorous... <laughs> Homicidal <laughs> mushrooms. No, no, we're going to shape shifting robots now. Oh boy! Yeah, okay. so we're going to keep the uh, keep the crazy theme going. You want entertaining news? We bring yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Starting off the year with a bang. Look, this is uh, some new research that was just out this week uh, in the the journal called Matter. There you go. Yeah, that's a self fulfilling sort of title. Isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. But it was. But from, does it? Yeah. Well. <laughs> Now we're into the existential questions for a Sunday morning. Um, but this is a collaboration between uh, researchers at Carnegie Mellon in, in Pennsylvania in the States and, and uh, Sun Yat-sen University in China. Very, very cool stuff. Did you guys ever get into Terminator? Oh, yeah. Or Terminator yeah, yeah. 2? Yeah, 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 of course. The, when was it? The 90s? I can't even remember now. I think the Terminator, the first one Terminator might have been a little two. earlier than that. No, like Terminator the, 2. I was, yeah. I was kind of the Terminator 2 vintage. Oh, but yeah. I always freaked out at that bit where, you know, the... the, the the liquid robot kind of... The T-1000. Yeah. Get on board. Like, oh, sorry, couldn't you even remember know. the name. <laughs> but he kind of walk through metal bars and yeah, things yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, well, cool. Guess what? Some researchers just did that <laughs> with a robot. Really? Yeah. So this is cool. So what they did was they've basically discovered over the years that, you know, you can do stuff with like little tiny robots and, you know, you need it for all sorts of applications. They need robots that can get through tight spaces, but they also need robots that can carry stuff. And what they found Mm. was that they either had robots that were like super fluid, but actually couldn't really carry any weight with them or do anything like that. So they were, you know, not useless, but they only had kind of one function, getting into places. Or they had robots that had some rigidity to their structure, but they couldn't really slip into those really, really tight spaces. Anyway, these researchers have combined the two ideas based on ideas around sea cucumbers, because apparently sea cucumbers can do this. The sea cucumbers can make themselves quite rigid or they can make themselves super sloppy and get into, yeah. like, really, really tight spaces. So they did this with gallium. Now, gallium is a really cool metal because it melts at 30 degrees Celsius. Right. So yep. what they were able to do was take gallium, uh, <clears throat> chuck a magnetic field around it and fiddle around with magnetic magnetic field. That would turn it on and off and that would heat the gallium enough that it could melt, then they would use magnets to move it around and then let it re-solidify. Hmm. And what they've found is that they can do this for a whole bunch of applications. And, of course, in the paper, you know what they did to demonstrate this, don't you? They built a little prison, a little Lego-like Terminator 2 T-1000 <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> How satisfying. And they yeah. demonstrated that this gallium could melt through the bars, and then they put a little mould of the Lego figure on the other side and it could re-solidify back on the other side. What a bunch of nerds. I know, but it was so cool. But, look, this was really awesome because it's got so many different applications. It could be used for anything like getting into really tight circuitry to Mm. solder pieces Mm -hmm. um, of 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 stuff together. They also used it um, inside a fake... Stump, well, not a fake stomach, it was a, a, a actual stomach, but you know, but then you think, well, hang on a second, our bodies inside are a bit warmer than 30 degrees mm. Celsius, so how could it re solidify? Apparently, they just need to add a, add a couple of different, yeah, yeah. <laughs> tin, some yep. other metals, and we're all good, but they, they keep hold of them, they don't. Cesium. Yeah. No, no cesium, no cesium. But what they can do, what they did in a in a in a in a fake stomach was they sent it in and it grabbed like a little metal ball and it, um, yeah, grabbed onto the metal ball and took it out. Wow. Amazing. So they could use for medical applications, all sorts of really cool things. Or removing so, Lego pieces from kids' esophaguses. Yes, exactly. Which happens. Button batteries. Things yes. like that. Yes. You know, things like, so So lots of different applications and very cool, but I did like the fact that they made a little mini prison and a little mini T-1000 and actually demonstrated this in the paper. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. And uh, can I say, Laura, you calling them nerds is literally the pot calling yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're the biggest That's nerd That's why I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm a huge nerd. But so. it's true. Yeah. We, but we it, do do stuff like that yeah. i know yeah. it was yeah. very awesome it is cool though i mean uh, i think if you can get some inspiration from uh sci-fi yeah yeah do it hey that's why in my lab i like playing with lasers yeah you know to shine them around in <laughs> randomly yeah people in other buildings through the window whatever <laughs> Oh, right. Sorry. So, sorry to the person in the architecture building. I didn't mean it. 
back in the 80s. Sorry, uh, it happened. Triple. In the studio with us now is Associate Professor Jane Burke. Jane is the head of the Respiratory Pharmacology Laboratory at Monash University. Welcome, Jane. Thanks, Dr. Shane. It is great to have you in here. You and I have been back and forthing on Twitter for, I don't know, 10 years? Something. Oh, quite a while, yes. <laughs> Quite a while. And I don't know, just never invited you. I've been slack. Oh, I put my hand up, though. You put the call out, oh, there, and there, there I is. was. There it is. Now, I had no idea either the area you were working in. It's super interesting. But before we get to that, so you're a, you're a pharmacologist. Uh-huh. So just for, for those out there who don't know what this term means, we've had a few pharmacologists on over the years, but what, what is pharmacology as a sure. field? So pharmacology really is the study of drugs, how they work, um, bit of drug discovery so it can – go from basic science all the way through to clinical research. Right. And if, if someone was going through uni and they saw two paths, you know, of, of pharmacy and pharmacology, yes. I mean, how do they differ? Yeah, so, well, obviously I'm a pharmacologist, not a pharmacist, mm. so I don't dispense drugs. Yep. I don't know a lot about formulation of drugs. Right. But I do know a lot about how they work, their interactions with each other, the body systems they interact with. So pharmacology is a really interesting science in that it bridges physiology, biochemistry. So if you were an undergraduate doing science and Mm. you saw pharmacology, you were interested in the medical side, um, then that's a good direction to go. But as I said, you don't come out of it with a vocation as such. So pharmacologists end up working in a real variety of industries, everything from pharmaceutical companies to drug regulation for government, um, academic positions like mine. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's, it's a pretty broad uh, topic to be involved in. And, of course, then within pharmacology, you could be interested in neuropharmacology right. or, like me, respiratory pharmacology. Yeah. I, used to, I used to work um, <clears throat> for one of the deans at Melbourne Uni years ago who was a pharmacologist. Uh, Every, I know. He, yeah. he was my PhD supervisor. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. So, so Jim would give me a lecture on something about ph- pharmacology every yes. other day, and I feel like I learned a lot about actually about the body and the way the sure. the body worked um, as a result of, of his sort of his Yeah, teachings. well, I came to Jim's lab. I was a biochemist, and he right. gave me a pharmacology textbook and said, go away and read that. So that was how I ended up doing a PhD with uh, him. He didn't, he didn't give me that book. He just held me in his office at, yeah. you know, at ac- academic appointment. Until I listened, um, he's a lieutenant governor. Now, I, I know. He's, uh, I know. Not People's talking, you know, pathways yeah. end up all over the place. Yes, so you know, if you want to be governor of the state, the pathway is through pharmacology, sure. maybe. Now you're working on a particular occupational lung disease mm-hmm. called silicosis. Sure. I think this is a this is a term that ho- hopefully a lot of people probably don't know about because mm-hmm. they haven't been affected by it. Mm-hmm. But we should all be aware of it because it's quite substantial. So run us through. First of all, what is silicosis? I mean, what's happening to the body and, and what's causing it? Okay, so it is an occupational lung disease, as you said. Um, so it's a consequence of breathing in very fine silica dust. So silica um, means a lot of things mm. to different people. Silicon, um, silicon dioxide is actually what silica is. Right. So it's, um, it's one of the most common elements on Earth. Of course, it's sand. Sand, yes. Yeah. And glass. And, it's and what we becomes get, glass. becomes glass. Yes. Yeah. But it's obviously part of um, – it's the major component of just about every natural stone. Mm. And then it's part of the engineered stone that's being used to make kitchen bench tops. Caesar stone, most people have probably heard of. Yep. So that engineered stone is has a very high percentage of this silicon – dioxide in it right whereas something like marble might be two percent the engineered stone is 97 percent silicon dioxide and when it's bound up together you know in your kitchen you're quite safe there's no issues with it but the issue has arisen because of unsafe work practices where workers have been dry cutting this stone with you know high speed drills metal blades, things like that, so it becomes fractured and forms these really tiny dust particles that are small enough to bypass all the body's normal protective mechanisms to stop things we're breathing in getting deep into our lungs. Sounds like such a familiar story, doesn't it? Yeah. When you think back about other contaminants. Sure, sure. I mean, we just want to breathe healthy, clean clean air. air. We don't want to be breathing in vapes. We don't want to be breathing in cigarette smoke. 
we don't want to be breathing in dust at work. And we mm. all know the history of um, inhaled asbestos. Yep. And compared to that, um, asbestosis takes a long time to develop, whereas silicosis is appearing in workers after very high exposure or even relatively short-term exposure, only over a couple of years. Yeah, interesting. I mean, you and I were talking just before mm. the the show because I used to work in the area where we made, you know, made and modified and used optical fibres, which are mm. made of silica, very pure silica. And one of the things that, you know, these things are, we, we work with these at very, very high temperatures. So the temperatures in the body aren't going to do squat to silica. And we used to use um, hydrofluoric acid, one of the most dangerous acid you, you can get in the lab that can kill you if you spill it on your body because it decalcifies your, your bones, as I recall, and causes all sorts of nasty problems. But, you know, we had to use that to eat away at this stuff. So presumably the body can't get this out once yeah, it goes so in. You think of um, our immune system as being cells that help us get rid of foreign things mm. that enter our body. But, of course, uh, silica is inorganic. Our body is not equipped to break it down into anything to remove it. So the cells in the lungs that are exposed to this silica, they try and chew it up. They take it in their macrophages. These are the big eaters in our immune system. They take that silica inside the cell and they generate all the enzymes that they're trying to break it down. But instead of uh, being able to break down the silica, the cells die. Those enzymes are then released into the, into the lungs where they break down things they shouldn't. And the silica's still there, so it just gets repackaged into another new macrophage. Wow. And it goes around and around. So there's this accumulation of dust in uh, workers who aren't wearing the appropriate PPA or their workplace hasn't got the appropriate um, control measures in place to make sure that they're only doing wet cutting, which mm, minimises yep, the dust, yep. uh, that they're removing dust using the right sort of vacuums and things. You don't want to sweep it around. Um, and the PPE, obviously, as we all know, is so important to have a proper fitting yeah, mask that indeed. avoids that exposure. And at the end of the work, end of workplace, um, end of a working day, you've got to make sure that you don't shake it off your clothes right, yeah. and breathe it yeah, in yeah, as well. Yeah. So there's a lot of issues in the workplace. And what we're really trying to do um, to sort of segue into what I do is trying to understand the disease processes to decide whether there are novel targets for treating the inflammation and the fibrosis or scarring in the lung that occurs um, in people who have this disease and also about early diagnosis so that people right. are avoiding exposure. Yeah. yeah, and and with the disease, when you when you have it, I mean, mm -hmm. is is this like having emphysema or, or lung cancer? What what is the impact on the mm. body? So the inflammation and is sort of one of the early phases, but that can continue. The fibrosis or scarring of the lungs is a bit different to emphysema, where the tissue is broken down in the mm. lungs as a consequence of the smoke and the enzymes that break down the walls of the air sacs where the gas exchange happens. Um, with silicosis, it's it's a fibrotic lung disease. So you get these nodules where the silica itself forms little um, yeah, nodules that you can see if you do a scan of the lungs of somebody mm. who's got this disease. And gradually that can progress to this massive fibrosis, which is scarring, which is stopping the oxygen right. actually getting into the blood. Wow. And I saw in, um, in the information you sent through to me, this could be affecting something around 100,000 people in Australia. Is that yeah. So there's been recently Curtin University did a study modelling um, based on current exposures to silica. So about over half a million workers in Australia are exposed to silica in some form, mm. whether they be uh, working in this stone industry or drilling, mining, um, it's in concrete. Uh, there was a woman diagnosed who was exposed to silica from working as an art teacher, doing pottery and grinding wow. pottery. Yeah, right. um, so the estimate is that there are over half a million workers who are exposed. And based on the workplace screening, since it emerged as an occupational lung disease, there's been a lot of work uh, at you know WorkSafe, mm. all those sort of Safe Work Australia and the government um, introducing screening at workplaces. And at some workplaces, the incidence of silicosis is over 20%. So it's going to wow. be affecting 
potentially a lot of uh, a lot of people. Yeah. So, I mean, is this something that has become more prevalent because of the the new types of materials that we're using? I mean, obviously, concrete's been around for a while and things like that, but because of things like stone bench tops and other, um, you know, human made materials, is it is it something that you think will become much more prevalent in the next? 20, 30, 40 years? Yeah, so ex- you're exactly right. The engineered stone as a, um, a material being widely used in construction, essentially, is really only in the last 20 years. So there have been various um, waves of silicosis. There was a, a, a high, an epidemic of it in Turkey when they were sandblasting denim for jeans, for example. Mm. Wow. Yeah, and just, yeah. you know, something that you would never expect would would have such a huge impact. So clearly, since it's emerged in Australia, the workplace um, regulations have been clamped down. The level of exposure that's considered acceptable is going down. Uh, There's some noises from the uh, CFMEU or whatever the union is that looks after this area saying that they want to actually ban it, Mm. the use of this engineered stone, because... And so it's this sort of perfect storm, isn't it? You use the material more, you get widespread use in obviously very responsible workplaces but backyard sort of places as well and it's a stone that has this high percentage of silica and it's not just the silica of course because it's engineered it's got resins and it's got binding agents and then it's fractured with these metal um, blades so you actually get very fine metal particles in it as well so it's a really dirty sort of product that ends up it's as I said, it's beautiful in your kitchen, but yeah. you just don't want to be breathing it in. Yeah. And Jane, what would you say? The uh, do you have an estimate of the undiagnosed rate? I mean, say, do, can people just live with this and have respiratory problems, but not know? So the workplace screening is trying to address that, so that workers are aware, and you know that any additional measures need to be put in place to protect them. Um, it's really important if somebody is working in that industry and their workplace isn't having screening that when they go and see their doctor with breathlessness that they make their doctor aware of their occupation. And there's a lot of training going on with clinicians to make sure that they are asking those sorts of questions mm, yeah. as well. So it's, um, Yeah, there's so many questions for clinicians to ask. Isn't it? I mean, this is where the whole Medicare debate thing is going on at the moment mm. where if you reduce the amount of money you give to GPs in particular – you, what you really do is reduce the amount of time that they have with patients, which makes these sorts of things very hard to diagnose. Yeah, so it's easy to ask somebody about their smoking history yeah. or if they got asthma or whatever. Yeah. And but do you cut bench tops uh, in your backyard by any pottery? chance? Yeah, yeah, yes. you're into, yeah. Yes. I mean, that's tough. Absolutely. Just before you, we, we let you go, Jane, just mm-hmm. um, in terms of the pharmacological sort of responses, sure. is, there, is there anything at the moment that looks good in terms of a way to address the inflammation and so forth once someone is diagnosed? Yeah, so uh, the treatments for silicosis are quite limited. You can take anti-inflammatories that Mm -hmm. are used for a lot of chronic lung diseases, but they're not affecting the root cause. The um, drugs that have been recently developed for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is a, a disease we don't know what causes the fibrosis, that slows down progression of disease, Mm. they're being trialled in silicosis patients as well. And then there's a really radical procedure which involves flushing the lungs out (laughs) of patients under anaesthetic, uh, obviously, um, with litres and litres of saline trying to wash out as much of the silica as possible. And that's been shown to, um, at least in some patients, to regress the size of these nodules, but whether it's going to be able to remove the scar tissue and restore lung function. So it's early diagnosis. It's really, really important. Yeah. Um, and, and that's part of what our yeah. research is about, trying to develop diagnostic tests to do that, as yeah. well as test um, some of these treatments that are still in the early stages. Yeah. Well, Jane, glad you and the team are on it. It is obviously a very substantial issue that, you know, like many of these, if we don't take action early, it will grow and it will end up affecting a lot of lives over a relatively, with this one, relatively short period of time. Yeah, it's not and, a, and long... relatively young workers yeah, too. Yeah, and it's not, um, you know, it's one of those things where not all, not all lung issues are because of smoking. As I say, you know, there's a lot of different things that can cause lung health problems. Um, and even if it is because of smoking, it doesn't mean we stop doing the research to to help. So We'll look after our lungs. That's the important thing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Associate Professor Jane Burke, Head of the Respiratory Pharmacology Laboratory at Monash University. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Dr Shane. Three. Triple.
You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Professor Lauren Rickards. Lauren's from RMIT University and soon to move to the Climate Change Adaptation Lab at La Trobe University. Lauren, welcome to the Triple R studio. Good morning. Thanks, Dr. Shane. And you're going to be further away when you move to La Trobe. You, know, you can't just run down to Triple R. It's, going to, <laughs> it's a bit further out. It's out on the Darabin Creek bike path, though. So I'm yeah. To that. But it's a great campus. Have, have you spent much time out there already? Yeah, I've yeah, sussed yep. it all out. Yeah, really looking forward to it after the uh, yeah, busy urban RMIT campus. But yeah, yeah. looking forward yeah. to the tranquility. Yeah, very different. I mean, both with their, their highlights and their great points, but exactly. uh, very, very different campuses. Now, you're a geographer um, mm. by, by trade, and how did you get into all the climate change sort of adaptation stuff? Yeah, well, so geography is a very broad church, mm. um, and so when I was doing it as an undergrad at University of Melbourne, my honours thesis started looking into the question of fire ecology, and so that's the science of how plants respond to fires. And then I went over to the University of Oxford and did a master's there just when climate change was really coming into a sort of its own as a subject. Yep. And it really grabbed my attention. And then as I moved on and I, and I did a um, PhD or DPhil, as they insist on calling it over there, mm. um, I started to move into the social dimensions of these environmental um, and social issues and pretty much have been on that path ever since. Yeah, interesting. I mean, we hear a lot at the moment, half of it I hear just from Ailey here because you know, she's a climatologist, but um, we hear a lot about you know more hurricanes, all these various things, but we don't talk a lot about all the other elements, do we? The, mm. the sort of non, sort of huge weather event elements. Mm. I mean, sometimes, but not quite as much as, as mm. we would imagine. I mean, what are the sort of main ones that you sort of focus on? Yeah, well, this is the, the, the question, actually. So... When we think about climate change, as you say, we focus on the spectacular. Mm. We focus on the events, on the what the ones that really make the, the media headlines. Yep. But what it's you know what we really need to be um, equally focused on, a bit like a sort of frog in a pot of increasingly mm. hot water, which is less uh, metaphorical than literal, um, is the fact that we're actually on a trend. We're, yep. we're on a big trend. And so that includes things like the well-known um, increase in average global temperatures. Yep. I, I won't go too much into the climate given we've got an expert here. Um, but the increased variability, increased intensity of those um, extremes as well, but then a whole range of other biophysical changes. And it's those indirect changes uh, that are really going to be um, some of the most difficult for us and most significant for us to deal with. So I'm talking about the sort of slow pressure effect that will occur, for example, on all of our plants and animals. Right. The, the movement of plants and animals, they're mm. going to be in different places um, as they migrate, uh, if they're able to do that. We're talking at the coastlines about sea level rise, coastal erosion. You know, the big missed one often is ocean acidification. Yep. Real changes in all of the um, social and environmental systems that we rely on for everyday life. So if you think of what that's like, it, sometimes I think about climate change, you know, through the, the health metaphor Often we focus on the injuries, if you like, mm, yep. so those big breaks, the big blows, and we're definitely getting more of those. We're getting more bruised, but it's also, in a sense, you know, something of a chronic illness. Yeah. You know, it's our general health that's starting to deteriorate, and this is metaphorical, but of course, it's only a short step across to some literal aspects of that as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you said something that sort of uh, made me think of this in a slightly different way because I've never really thought that on Earth we have quite a range of migratory species by mm -hmm. default mm -hmm. um, that are able to move according to, to weather and, and mm -hmm. conditions. Then we have a whole lot that aren't. Mm. I mean, are we, are we looking at a scenario where many of those will have to? Is that is that where sort of heading, where plants people, species that traditionally are kind of land or sea locked in various locations will either have to migrate to different locations or they won't, won't, they won't continue? Well, yeah, so it's, it's an extremely um, serious situation for, for all biodiversity. Mm. Um, what you're talking about is, so if you think of climate change as that shift in climatic conditions, then Yes, then the, the climatic envelope, if you like, which is, again, a metaphor, <laughs> things don't live in envelopes, the, the climatic space that something lives in um, will spatially shift. And mm. so some species have the ability, but some don't have the ability. But you've got to understand, too, that there's 
so many factors. I, you know, <laughs> coming from that sort of ecology background, there's so many factors that determine whether something can or can't live in a yep. certain environment, and all of those factors are going to be changing. Yep. That's what I mean by the sort of pressure effect of climate change. Yes, it's sort of the direct climatic aspect, but once that starts triggering and flowing, cascading through all the relationships, there's a whole lot of stuff that's going to yep. change. So it might not be that you're particularly impacted by those higher temperatures or the changes in seasonality but your um your food source might be mm. and so equally you are likewise your competitors might outcompete you because they're actually thriving and you're not it might be that your disease load increases and so it's the interactions mm. between species including humans yep. that is really uh the big question here yeah. and the speed of change i suppose the speed is a of big, change. big element because we, we see Absolutely. change on the globe you know, throughout history, but not at this rate. Well, that's right. And so what we have to do is really put in place all the things we can do to accommodate all of the different change processes. Mm. So, you know, to state the obvious, habitat clearing, you know, is worse than ever yep. in a climate-changing world because we need to increase the number of places species can live right. if they can move. Because, yeah. you know, it's all very well to have a nice theoretical map of this species will move down here. When you look at it, no, it's nope. actually now it's a, yeah, you know, you urban... Yeah. So on that kind of... Um, discussion about you know the interactions between different things do we have a handle yet on whether that is the more important part of the equation or whether the kind of chronic you know just displacement or or things is the more important part of the equation or we don't have a handle on it and this is why we need research in this area yeah we're going to know which one where the weighting lies or Look, it's, no. <laughs> I guess, it, yeah, from a kind of, you know, if you were to do a formal review, you'd probably say no. But I think um, there's a very strong sense that the systemic effects are very much uh, becoming uh, a focus for research and policy because it is just so confronting. So just to kind of flip from the sort of social ecological, um, you know, the ecological systems across to more the social technical, you think about all of the infrastructure that we rely on to be doing this interview here today. Mm. And you think, you know, it's not just us, it's in all of our listeners' Um, places, you know, it's, there's so much that we require to work together and the precarious holds that, that you know, it requires that, you know, just as an example, like it would be harder and harder if we don't adapt to actually have those pieces of infrastructure, those systems all working together in the right way with those kind of multiple pressures. Yeah. And so questions like cascading impacts, compounding impacts, these are the real um, focal points for research and policy at the moment. I remember about 20 years ago now, um, as things were really starting to, you know, 30, me, 30, 20 years ago, when things were really starting to get a move on with regards to climate discussions and so forth, and I said, we need to start putting money into adaptation because even if we were perfect tomorrow, a portion of this is still going to happen. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we weren't perfect. We were far from perfect. But mm -hmm. I remember talking about that with, with people on the show about, you know, the need for adaptation research. Where do you put it? I mean, where do you where do you hit first? Because there are so many different elements of adaptation that will be required, as you say. I mean, where do we where do we start? Yeah, well, I think we start with the low hanging fruit, um, which is to say, we already know a lot about what we need to do. Mm -hmm. um, so, if I just we, um, you know, just to put in a plug, we also need research on adaptation specifically and conceptualising it and, and kind of frameworks for yep. it. And one of the big frameworks that's really, really um, influential is the fact that climate change impacts are literally an impact. They're a right. collision. Yep. They're a collision between some kind of climate-related pressure and given circumstances at the time. Mm -hmm. Now, we know, you said not perfect, I think you're talking about greenhouse gas mitigation, but we're certainly not perfect in a whole lot of ways that mean that we're vulnerable, we're sitting ducks, for whatever small or large climatic stress comes along. And so the low-hanging fruit is to address all of the weaknesses and the issues in our current circumstances. I'm talking right. things here about worsening inequality, I'm talking here things about biodiversity loss, habitat yep. clearing, you know, pollution, um, disease loads, like 
all of those things mean that impacts will be worse. Mm. And so the first kind of route for adaptation is simply to reduce the vulnerabilities. The other side of um, adaptation is to focus more specifically on what we can do to reduce the impacts of given climatic changes. So greenhouse gas mitigation is about reducing the accumulation of the gases causing climate change. As you say, there's a, a large degree of that now locked in. Mm. Adaptation is about saying, okay, well, given that, what now? And the yep. what now actually opens up so many different things we can do. And so it might be about reducing the incidence of a, of a hazard like a flood. And we know from experience just recently that the way we organise cities and landscapes influences whether or not an area will be flooded. But then there's all the questions around, so if flooded, how well do we respond there as a society? How well do we respond? How well does a particular community, neighbourhood, household, individual respond? Mm. All of those things. And then adaptations about doing that across all the climatic hazards all at once, plus the ones that are to come plus working on those foundations. Yeah. So it's yeah. a busy time, busy Yeah, time. It's, it's interesting too. I mean, I, I know just before we go, um, humans also have a, a tendency to think this will only happen once whenever there's a disaster. So, you mm. know, if there's a flood, it's like, well, it's a 100-year flood. Or if there's a bushfire, oh, well, it hasn't come through here before. And, and so they, they react in such a way that is consistent with being vulnerable the day after it happens yet again. And we, we kind of need to move out of that thinking, don't we, to one of – you know, pre- preparing for exactly that same thing and worse into the future. Yeah, that same thing <clears throat> and worse. And the flip side as well, the opposite. We need mm. to be preparing for drought now. Yeah, We need yeah. to have been preparing for drought as we've been dealing with floods. Yeah. Uh, likewise, all of the other manifestations of a changing climate as well. Yeah, this is the thing. There's just so much to do. And I'm increasingly um, concerned that, you know, today our capacity to adapt is at its maximum because mm. as the impacts accumulate, we're at a real risk of slipping backwards. Yeah. So adaptation enables us to do anything tomorrow. It enables us to adapt tomorrow. It enables us to mitigate greenhouse gases tomorrow. And let's not pretend that that's not really hard work. Yeah. Yeah. So everything we do uh, is enabled by adaptation today. So it, it just makes so much sense. I'm kind of um, really quite baffled as to why it's not a greater um, agenda, and I really hope that we're going to see some change there. Sounds good. Well, it sounds like Latrobe is taking it pretty seriously. They're setting you up out there. I hope that is a huge success, and we hear more and more from the new Climate Change Adaptation Lab. Um, Good to see Latrobe doing that. And, of course, a big thank you to RMIT University for lending you to us today. Excellent. Uh, Not that you work on Sundays, but, you know, (laughs) well, probably. (laughs) What academic? Most academics do. Um, Lauren, thanks so much for coming in today. Good luck with the ongoing work. And and I hope that the stuff coming out from your lab actually helps a lot. Great. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Three. Triple. Studio is filled with excitement after that interview with uh, <laughs> Dr. Laura and Dr. Ailey. Very excited about all the adaptation they're going to do tomorrow. Is that right? Uh, well, we were just saying we're all going to die. <laughs> I'm scared. We're, we're both having a bit of an existential crisis right now. The oh, low-hanging fruit sound too hard. <clears throat> yeah, it's complex. Systems. We've got to get on it. It's yeah, lots of system science. I Are think. you on this? Was... I'm, well, no, I'm on. I'm on one side of this. Well, yeah, but I think this is oh. the point, right? I think that a lot of people. This is what's needed to address these, you know, so-called wicked problems like climate change and other really complex problems is we need groups of people yeah. to work together from these different areas and in real interdisciplinary projects. So it's just it. so interesting. I know. was trying to cheer people up and then Laura comes out with, we're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Something okay, snappy for your Sunday okay. morning. We'll just stop listening to the person <laughs> who's an Im- immunologist because they've got other things to deal with right now, do you think? Well, yeah, but this sounds worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to get through this wow. one first. Ailey. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end on a... Well, just a, Please lift just, me up. Yeah, well, we'll just talk about some fun stuff now. All right. Okay. I, th- I thought we might talk about... Because, you know, it's just been holidays and I don't know about you, but we went away just after Christmas and had a wonderful time and I didn't want to come home. And we went into northeastern Victoria. 
and uh, Kiwa yes. Valley, which is kind of up towards the basically go to Wodonga Mildura? and the no, uh, further, base of Falls Creek. Okay, yep. so you go to Mildura, uh, Mildura. What am I talking about? You go to Aubrey Wodonga and go southeast. It's uh, yeah, base of Falls Creeks, lovely, lovely spot, or that that kind of valley that comes out there. So hmm. really pretty. We had a great time. You know, thirty degrees every day. Sunny, the occasional thunderstorm. And, we're, just, uh, we're just talking about your holidays. Yeah, pretty much. No, this is the end of the show. No, <laughs> no. But what what got me thinking for this segment, right, was that as I said, it was. I don't think it got below about twenty eight when we were there, and it was stunning weather. It's going to get dark. Well, no, it's not. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wait Lauren's on this train. Wait She's not it. getting off. <laughs> but no, I was talking to family back here, and they were saying, "Oh no, it's only eighteen today, yeah. In Melbourne." Yeah, it was chilly. Yeah. And there were a couple of times where they're like, oh, no, it's not that done. And I'm, I'm like three hours drive away. Yeah. And, and a 10, got, 12 degree difference. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it got me thinking. And as we drove back, actually, we came back um, and it was, I think it was 35 when we left. It was a yeah. hot day. It was 24 in Melbourne. Nice. And yeah, yeah about 35 <laughs> you can keep. And you know, you could see the gradient, that, that change in temperature as you were driving. And it just got me thinking about how different that inland area was to around Melbourne and why, right? Because it's, is it just because you're inland? Is it, I mean, you know, I know the reasons, but I'm just pondering these Since things. We're so excited talking. to hear. Well, no, but seriously, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. and it got me thinking about the role of mountains in meteorology, because this is ultimately what it comes down to. There's a bit of kind of inland stuff in the sense that we're further away from the ocean. The ocean has right. a moderating effect totally. But one of the big things about, um, that contrast and the difference it makes is the mountains, right? And so we've got this honking great mountain range, which by world stands is pretty piddly, but, you know, for Australia it's pretty good. We love it. We'll we'll go with it. It's the Bradbury of mountains. (laughs) (laughs) The Bradbury Bradbury of of mountains. mountains. Oh, dear. Yeah, I don't think it's quite winning anything, though. That's the problem. (laughs) It's winning here. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, So, and this is what makes the big difference. So I thought I'd talk a bit about mountain meteorology, right, because this is really interesting. You get such massive what we call gradients or changes in climate over very very small distances because of mountains. Mm-hmm. And so one of the reasons where I was, uh, what we would say north of the ranges, um, was so much hotter um, is partly because of the predominant um, wind direction and the way that the air flows over the mountains. So what happened when I was there was there was a lot of southerlies, which makes sense, right? It's winds coming from the south, kind of yep. coming off the ocean, Antarctica. It was drizzly. It was raining in Melbourne. Every afternoon we could see these stacks of big thunderstorms forming over the other side of the ranges. We'd look up and see just the tops of these clouds, which kind of meant they were forming down near Omeo and Sale and Bansdale and that kind of area. And so what that said to us was, well, if we've got these kind of southerly or southwesterly winds pushing this um, relatively cool and moist air up over the mountains, well, that air has nowhere else to go but over the mountains, right? So as it goes up, it cools, it condenses, it forms rain. And of course, when you've got more energy in the summer, it often it can, can form thunderstorms, right? Yep. But as it goes over, it's literally like squeezing out a sponge, right? right. You've, you've, you've squeezed out that moisture up over the range. And then as it it basically falls kind of down the other side, it dries and it warms. And so what you tend to find um, around the world, doesn't matter where you are, is that you find that what we call the windward side of the mountain range tends to be very wet. And you can see this everywhere. I'll give you a few examples in a minute. Um, But then you get kind of a maximum of rainfall over the range or over the, the peak that's the windward side of the range. And then on the other side of the mountain range, what we call the leeward side, is very, very dry and it's often much warmer. And these can be distances that are relatively... A few kilometres. Tiny. Yeah. Tiny. Um, and... I find it so fascinating because so we often call that a rain shadow. If you've ever heard of a rain shadow, right? Um, and a rain shadow is where, yeah, basically you get this shadow of rain. You don't get any rain or you get much less rain uh, because of the effect of these mountains. And so you can see this uh, even around Melbourne with relatively small peaks. So we have kind of peaks to the north of Melbourne and even, you know, through the through the range um, kind of where I was, um, you know, kind of to the east of Melbourne, maybe the, the, the mountains on average are around kind of a 1,000 metres or something like that. Like they're not big by world standards. Yeah. And even then I did some digging this morning and you can have a look there, Wangaratta, right, central Victoria, 613 millimetres a year. On By contrast... If you kind of go south 
Morewall on the other side of the range, to the south side of the range, 740 millimetres a year. Mm. We see this across Melbourne. The western suburbs have around, I think it's about 550 mil of rain. The outer eastern suburbs get up to about eight or 900 sometimes. Ripped off in the mm. west. And that's again. only because of the dandenongs, yeah. The right? dandenongs, yeah, because it's just compressing the air as it approaches well, the Well, it, it doesn't compress it. It pushes it up. Pushes it up. Yeah, so okay. we've got a slight elevation increase as we go across oh, so the east because of the foothills. Yeah, yeah, and then the cold air drags it out. Yeah, well, yeah. basically it, it, it cools as it goes yeah. up. And so the water comes out. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So as it, as it goes up, it does that. But around the world, you can get some pretty amazing gradients. I had a look at a few. There's an area in Norway, 62 kilometres apart, so on the west side because they're predominantly westerlies up there, yep. and they've got a big mountain range, mountain chain up the, the – which is not huge, again, by world standards, but it's a very wet part of the, the, the world. So you've got one station that has two metres of rain a year, 62 kilometres away, 291 millimetres. Wow. So point two nine. It's like a tenfold change. Yeah, yeah. over sixty kilometres apart. Yeah. Um, Alaska was another big one. So in Anchorage, their annual rainfall or precipitation, I should say, up there because of a lot of snow, but yep. equivalent precipitation yeah, yeah. Yep. as rain, um, is around four hundred millimetres a year. But up in the mountains, only seventy-five kilometres away, five thousand millimetres, five Whoa. metres of rain. And we see this around Australia too. The most predominant place that we see it is Tassie. There's a, a, a again, mm. small, small, relatively yeah, speaking, yeah, yeah. relative uh, mountain range. But if you go from Strawn on the West yep. Coast, it's about 1,500 mils, uh, to Oatlands, which is kind of on the east coast of Tassie, um, or not east coast, it's inland a little bit, but that's only 550. And so what a lot of people, you know, when you think of Tassie, what do you think of? You think of cold, you Wet, think of lush. rain. Yeah, miserable. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. But actually Hobart and Surrounds... Um, that east side of Tassie is Not in a rain way. shadow. And so Hobart's rainfall, annual rainfall, is less than Melbourne's. <gasps> I didn't know that. Yeah. This is a positive story because now I'm just going to look, am I on the right side of the mountain? I like <laughs> it. Right side of the tracks. You know? Yeah, and if you've ever driven kind of up from, you know, over through Healesville and over the other side mm-hmm. of the range, every time you go north, it yeah. will suddenly get Stuff, sunny. Yeah. Yep. And the clouds will lift, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you come south, and, and it'll it be, to rain. or well, it'll get cloudy, yeah. Yeah, it or cloudy, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they can make a big difference. I have to say, Ailey, we're out of time, but your oh. holidays have taught us a lot. There yeah, you go. I'm Maybe I should go on holidays more to teach you more. <laughs> Maybe that's the answer. Talk to your institution about that. Oh, I think it's a good I idea will. too. I mean, you're in the field. Makes <laughs> sense. Makes good sense. Well, thank you, Ailey. Great work, uh, Doctor Laura. I, I really don't want. I'm up and down today. You're up and down today. I'm uplifted now. Yeah, but you're feeling good. You're going to drive out to Hillsville later today and just check out the clouds. Yep. I would. It's Thank a lovely, you, lovely part of the world. Folks, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go today. I'm Dr. Shane. We're going to hand over in a moment to Cam over there in Studio 2. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a great Sunday, and we'll chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Go-Go a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Twitter account or Facebook page.